Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Today, we start our summer sermon series. We've heard the question asked for decades, and we ponder whether or not it's true. You're listening to Reason to Believe, Is Religion Dying? by Reverend Peter Yonker. So today we start a new worship, um, we start a new sermon series. And uh, for that sermon series, as we begin, I have two Bible passages. I will read the first one, which is 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. I'll read that up front. And the second passage, which is Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1 through 11, I'll read a little later. So, first, 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in with for the hope that is within you but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander this is the word of the lord thanks be to god so this morning, we're starting a new sermon series. All summer long, we will be focusing on uh, one subject, and that subject is Christian apologetics. It's a sermon series on apologetics. And now I know that some of you know exactly what that means. Others of you are not so sure. Sometimes when, when Christians talk about apologetics, um, it sounds like the word apology. But apologetics really doesn't have all that much to do with apologizing. Apologizing is saying you're sorry. Apologetics, as a Christian discipline, comes from the Greek word apologeomai, which means to offer a defense, to make a defense. So when we Christians do apologetics, we are making a defense of our faith. When someone has questions about our faith or accuses our faith of being unreasonable, we do apologetics to answered them and to say, no, we, we have good reason for what we believe. The governing text for this whole series is the text I just read. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter, Peter says to us, always be ready to give reasons for the hope that is within you. In this series, we will attempt to give you reasons to answer the questions of faith. But let me say a couple of things about the way we do that, really important for this whole series. First, when we do apologetics, when we defend our faith, we do it with gentleness and respect. That's what Peter says. Even when other people come at us, even when they're malicious, even when they're mean, we respond with gentleness and respect. So that means when someone questions our faith or questions it, calls it irrational in a way that we don't like, we don't come at them with our arguments that we've learned and say, oh yeah, well, here's answer number one and here's answer number two and here's answer number three, I win. That's not how we fight. Instead, we say, I'm sorry that you think my faith is irrational and, and makes no sense. Let me try to explain to you why I still love Jesus why I follow him, and here are my reasons. Gentleness and respect. And the second thing I want to say for the whole series is this. Let's be honest and admit 
that sometimes the questions and accusations about faith come from us. It's our minds, our hearts that have these questions that we will respond today. So I hope that, that all the sermons that we have in this series will strengthen our hearts, both for our own internal dialogue and for the way we talk to the people out there in the world. Okay. That's the introduction to the series, which brings us to today's challenge to the faith, today's question. And today we look at the claim that religion is dying. This is a claim where people say religion is old-fashioned, it's medieval, it's primitive, and primitive people who are backward thinking are religious, and as we mature, and as we learn, and as we get smart, we learn to leave religion behind, and we move on to higher things. I am sure that you have heard people say things like that as you read the papers, as you just listen to people talk. Religion is primitive, it's medieval, we're beyond that. People have been saying stuff like this for a long, long time. Back in 1966, actually uh, two weeks after I was born, uh, Time Magazine released an issue with an infamous cover. The cover was black, and on the cover in provocative red letters was a question. And the question was, is God dead? And inside, the, there was articles by some very sort of out there theologians who said that religion was slowly being left behind and we didn't need religion anymore and we didn't need the concept of God anymore and we could make our own meaning. And it wasn't just some highfalutin theologians who were saying this. This, this kind of message was coming out in pop culture too. The same year that that Time magazine came out, John Lennon of the Beatles in an interview said this, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right. And I will be proved right. Lately, there are some statistics that might seem to back up what John Lennon said. You hear people talk all the time about the rise of the nuns, how in America, all the people on the surveys who are asked, what is your religion? The, the, the fastest growing number on those surveys is those who answer none, as in, I have no religion. 1970s, early 70s, only 5% of Americans said, I have no religion, that they were nuns. Today, 23.1% of Americans say they have no religious attachment. That means the nuns are as numerous as Catholics, and the nuns are as numerous as evangelicals. So is religion dying? Is it fading? Atheists, of course, celebrate these trends. They say good riddance. Stephen Jay Gould, who's one of the early sort of neo-atheists, as an outspoken critic of Christianity and, and celebrates these trends. Here's his view of the world. We humans are here, he says, because one group of fish had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. That's the only reason we exist. And we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And then he follows that up with a kind of ethic. He says, this is not bad, this is good. This explanation 
though superficially troubling, is ultimately liberating because now we construct our answers ourselves. Do you hear what Gould is saying? And he's speaking for a lot of people. He's saying, if we can get rid of religion and its obligations, if we can get rid of God, then, then we can choose whatever we want for our meaning. We can go wherever we want under the sun and choose any old thing and build our life around it. Make it our purpose. Make it our destiny. Which brings us at last to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 3,000 years before Time Magazine and before John Lennon and before Stephen Jay Gould, the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher he calls himself, set off on a little experiment where he tried to find meaning under the sun. He started the Under the Sun Meaning Project. It was a little experiment he undertook. And in that experiment, he tried to find meaning under the sun. He decided he would look for any earthly thing, any under the sun thing, and try to build his life around it and see if he could find satisfaction in it, to see if he could find real meaning in one of these earthly things. Let's see how the under the sun meaning project worked for him. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes 2 and hear the result of his under the sun meaning project. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. And nothing was gained under the sun. The word of the Lord. So how did that under the sun meaning project turn out? Not so good. At first, the teacher tries to find some meaning and purpose in his life by chasing pleasure. It seems like in verses 1 through 3, he's chasing more physical pleasures. At the end of the passage, it's more like he's chasing the pleasures of achievement. But none of them work. He finds no satisfaction in any of them. They're all meaningless. And if you read through the rest of Ecclesiastes, you'd hear that the teacher goes after other things as well. He tries wisdom. He tries riches. 
He tries power, success, all of the things. He tries every living thing under the sun and none of them give him meaning. Why do they all fail? Well, meaning is, of course, a linear concept. When you try to do something that's meaningful, when you want one of your actions to be meaningful, what you're hoping is that when you do it, it will have some lasting effect that it will be part of some story or some project that will have an end goal that will endure. So meaning has this kind of shape. It's linear. It progresses, okay? But what the, what the teacher of Ecclesiastes finds is when he does his deeds, instead of going this way, they all end up going in circles. He finds that all these deeds end up being a chasing after the wind. That's his language, right? It's, it's like a hamster in a hamster wheel. You just go round and round and round and round and then you die. If you really want to see where the teacher of Ecclesiastes talks about the circularity of life instead of the meaningfulness of life, read chapter one of Ecclesiastes. And he just talks about how everything moves in a circle. The sun rises and the sun sets. The wind goes to the north and then it goes to the south, and then it goes to the north again. You get up in the morning, you get dressed, you eat your Fruit Loops, you go off to work, you work hard, you come home, you eat your dinner, you watch TV, you go to bed, and in the morning you get up and you do it again, only now you're one day closer to death. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Everything is wearying more than one can say, says the teacher. Why does the under the sun meaning project fail? Because of death. In order for something to mean something, it has to endure, it has to keep going in that direction. And nothing keeps going because death is this brick wall. Everything under the sun is temporary. Everything under the sun can fail. Wealth can feel like it's moving somewhere, but a pandemic, a depression, and wealth can evaporate overnight. Pleasures always fade, right? Your senses dim. Wisdom, you can gain all kinds of wisdom, but if it's ignored by the powerful who are fools, what does it matter? In our achievements, you can build something amazing, and when you're done, you hand it over to someone else, and they can make a mess of it overnight. Death and this world of temporary things keeps us from finding anything truly meaningful under the sun. You feel like it's going somewhere and then it's just round in circles. If you want to find true meaning in this world, you can't anchor it in something temporary. If you want to find true meaning in this world, you can't anchor it on anything under the sun. You have to anchor it beyond, spiritually beyond the sun. You have to anchor it in something that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have to anchor it in a refuge and a strength that doesn't move even when the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. You have to anchor it in a thing or a person from whose grasp neither height nor depth, neither death nor life, nor anything else in all creation will ever take us. If you want true meaning in this life, you have to anchor it in the one who is above the sun, beyond the sun, the one who made the sun, 
Jesus Christ our Lord. Religion will not die anytime soon because we are meaning-making creatures. Every human being wants their life to be meaningful, to count for something. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. And so we're reaching for something beyond. And we will always keep reaching. And that thing that we're reaching for, that person for whom we reach, is Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to finish today's sermon with three very specific arguments. And this is where we get very apologetic, if you will. Three specific arguments against the idea that religion is primitive and that it's dying in this world. And the first of those three arguments is statistical. It's simply saying, statistically speaking, religion is not dying at all. Yes, it's true that it's struggling in Europe. Yes, that it's true that in America the nuns are rising. But when you look at the world, in 2020, the number of Christians in Korea, Japan, and China will have gone from 11.4 million in 1970, so in 1970, 11.4 million, to 167 million today, from 11.4 to 167 in East Asia. The numbers are even more amazing in Africa. In 1910, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. That's about 9% of the population back then. Today, there are 670 million Christians in Africa, which is roughly half of the African population. Yes, we're struggling with some nuns in America. Yes, we're a little bit worried about church attendance sometimes. And those are good things to worry about. But if you look at the, all, the overall trends, religion is growing. A sociologist of religion named Eric Kaufman, and I got this from Tim Keller's book, uh, Making Sense of God, which is one I'm using throughout this series. A sociologist named Eric Kaufman, who's a, who's a secular guy, doesn't, not a believer, teaches at the University of London. He wrote a book called Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And his conclusion at the end of it, which he wasn't particularly happy about, was yes, religions are growing. And he was interviewed by a magazine called The New Humanist, which you could tell from the title is clearly a secular magazine. And they were sort of lamenting this trend. And they said, why is religion still growing? And this is what Kaufman said. Religion continues to grow because religion provides enchantment, meaning, and emotion. And in our current moment, we secularists lack that. That's because you can't find it under the sun. We are fundamentally religious people. We have eternity in our hearts, and we will always be reaching for God. The second fact that tells us that religion isn't dying, and this one is interesting to me, is the increase in our expressions of religious hunger. In this country, um, attendance at church services and other kinds of religious expression may be trending down. But do you know what's trending up? The cry of hungry souls desperate for spiritual food. The human soul is made for God. And when it doesn't get fed, it gets really, really hungry. And when it's hungry, it cries out like a baby bird. And the sound it makes is a terrible, terrible sound. And if you listen carefully, you can hear that sound everywhere in our world. 
You hear it in the dissonance and anger of modern music. The rage of some forms of heavy metal. The, the, the wailing, the, the, the sadness of emo music, the angstiness of indie music, the dissonance of a lot of modern classical music, the screams of punk rock. You see that spiritual hunger in the darkness of a lot of modern fiction and the darkness of a lot of modern cinema. You know, these end-of-the-world movies where everything is angsty and everything is dark and all the ends are ambivalent. Now, you may not like that stuff. You may think all that music is just junk and that it's vile, but if you listen carefully, it's a spiritual sound. It's the sound of souls crying out, hungry for their Lord, eternity in their hearts, reaching for something that they don't know and they don't name. In Making Sense of God, Tim Keller has a really interesting quote from um, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs died a relatively young man. He got cancer. He fought it for a long time. And he was a pretty secular guy. He wasn't particularly religious. But even he couldn't stop the eternity from crying out in his heart. And as he was struggling with cancer, he said this. It's strange. So I really want to believe that something survives. That, that maybe your consciousness endures. Steve Jobs may be secular, but, but he has this feeling like life has got to be more than this. My, I feel eternal. I feel like I'm made for something more. He has eternity in his heart, and as he faces death, he can feel that reaching out. Being secular people react to death is a good indicator of this holiness that we're made for God. When, when, when secular people lose the people they love, it, it haunts us. We don't just feel it as a, as a sort of a shallow sadness. It, it, we feel it in our soul. It's a sign that we have eternity in our hearts, that we're made for something more, that death should not be. We are religious people. We are restless until we find our rest in God. Final point, creatures, joy. We all have these moments in our life where we experience joy. And by joy, I mean not just happiness and not just contentment, but these moments where we're sort of lifted up and lifted out of ourselves and where our heart sings in this way that goes beyond the circumstances right in front of us. So you, maybe you're on the back deck with a group of friends and you're having a nice little uh, drink together and you're talking. And one of the... And the thing that the person said wasn't even that funny, but somehow in your joy and in the friendship, you are lifted up. It's joy. C.S. Lewis writes a lot about joy. And for him, joy was a huge part of his conversion, what brought him to Jesus. Before he was a Christian, he talks about an experience of joy that he had reading Norse poetry. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who has joy over Norse poetry? Well, C.S. Lewis, that's who. Here's what happened. He's reading this great Norse epic, and he comes to a line that says simply this, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. Seems like a common line, but for Lewis it triggered something in him. He says, the words seem to have come from infinity itself. I was instantly uplifted into huge regions of the northern sky. 
words. It wasn't just this, this poem. That It was something beyond, something transcendent that his heart was reaching for. And it started him on the path to Christianity. When human beings experience joy, it's like God leaning over and whispering in our ear, you are... And God does this often enough that it's not always so easy to be an atheist and an unbeliever. Atheists struggle when God whispers joy in their ears. Kenneth Clark, the British historian who oh, quite a while ago already did this series called Civilization, he had an experience of joy. He's a secularist, he's an atheist. He had an experience of joy while he was filming that series while he was filming Civilization. He was in a church in France called San Lorenzo. And it's a beautiful church, but while he was in the church, he had this sort of experience that went way beyond the beauty of the physical place. Here's how he describes it. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being radiated with a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I've ever experienced before. And you think, wow, heavenly joy in a church. Surely that started him thinking about Jesus. Didn't he become a Christian then? Nope. Instead, this joy made him feel awkward, made him feel uncomfortable because he realized that if this really was God whispering in his ear, if this joy really pointed somewhere beyond himself, he would have to change. He'd have to submit to this experience, and he didn't want to do that. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. You feel joy and you push it away. You feel the sound of eternity, one of the best things in human life, and you stomp on it. What a shame. We are fundamentally religious creatures. and The joys of this world show us that we are made for fellowship with God. And of course, well, this eternal thing, for us as Christians, Eternity is a person. In Bethlehem, eternity was laid in a manger. And for a few years, 33 of them or so, eternity walked on this earth and we could look eternity in the face and he talked with us. And in love, he sacrificed himself on a cross and the father raised him up on the third day and he ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of God so that our hearts will know the way to the place of eternity and we will know the path of true meaning. Eternity is not just a feeling in our hearts. Eternity has a name and a face and an eternity knows our name. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, day after day in hundreds of ways you whisper in our hearts. Day after day, you remind us that we were made for fellowship yet to go. And sometimes it lifts us up in joy. But Lord, we know that wherever we go, it's your spirit. It's you speaking to us. Help us to hear that voice and to know your salvation. In Christ our Lord, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.